Welcome to Cinemakers, Amy Heckerlin. This is episode 50, Look Who's Talking To, from 1990. I'm Mike Manzi. I'm Kara Galarica. And I'm Joey Lewandowski. And so... Here we are again. So this movie... I think my big complaint is that it's not really a movie. I don't think there's really, like, plot... I don't think that there's really story. I don't know if this is me coming off such a high of the first movie, right? But, like, there's just scenes. Like, there's just things that happen in this movie. Like, it, it's not great. I like this, you know, in terms of our letterbox rankings. I, I gave it fewer stars than the two of you. I did not like this movie. I still like it more than Giant Dangerously or European Vacation. But I just, I just, this didn't, especially off how great I thought the last one was, how great we all thought the last one was, this just didn't do it for me. Yeah, I, I think there's a drop-off for sure. I think that it has a very rocky start to it, but I feel like it finds its way as it goes along. But I agree, it feels almost like a couple episodes of the sitcom Look Who's Talking, and I was actually pretty surprised how little talking baby there was in this one than I remembered. But I kind of enjoyed some key moments in this, and I thought it went in some interesting directions, but it's it's not terrific. It's not the last one, but it was... I think it was a good effort because you knew it it had to happen. And since they knew it had to happen, I feel like they did the best they could. Yeah. I mean, I think it was fine. It was kind of a letdown, but... That about sums it up. <laughs> it's the best review. As far as sequels go, also not the worst one I've seen. But I just, I think that like the core idea of like the baby talks only really has so much mileage to it. And then yep. there's not too many places that you can go with it after that. What bothered me a little bit is that it didn't seem consistent in whether or not he could hear his sister talk, like whether or not they could talk to each other. Because it feels like early on, Mikey says something and then his sister Julie says something and it doesn't seem connected. And in the end, they sort of have a little conversation. But I feel like if the movie's about now we've got two talking babies i feel like there should be more of that like they should get into more wacky antics but that seems to sort of happen off screen sort of like when the apartment catches on fire at the end and mikey pushes her out like we see a little bit of that but i feel like we could have seen more that could have been the whole movie yeah exactly we talked about it last time like it could have been rugrats you know what i mean where it could have been them bonding over parents they don't really understand yeah I mean, I feel like there's a couple missed opportunities here. I thought it would have gone in the direction where Mikey is now actually talking and that he can't understand the baby sister anymore. And it's, you know, and that's sort of a twist about it. And she's like, I can't hear my sister's, what's the baby thinking that? Or is just completely ignoring it and it's all from the new baby's perspective. I thought that could have been interesting because I was also a bit thrown with it. I was thinking now they're like, it started feeling a little sort of village of the damned when they're like reading each other's mind or something to me. A very different Kirstie Alley movie about pregnancy, which I just watched this weekend. I think that's why it came to mind. I saw that you watched it. But it's funny, my thing about what I said about the last movie was like, oh, I could enjoy this without the talking baby like I think it would make an interesting film and I do kind of enjoy the adult situation stuff and and what they're going through struggling marriage and and that I think that's interesting you don't really see a lot of it portrayed that way very often that worked for me more than like the talking baby stuff this time yeah this one was like a lot darker I think than the first movie but it's the same tone in a way like the situations in it I feel like are a lot darker like the baby almost 
dies at the very beginning of the movie and is like, oh, I guess this is the end. Goodbye. And then like winds up not dying. But to like right off the bat start out with like possible child death, like that's a very dark movie. And I feel like they kind of kept on that darkness like throughout the film with like the grittiness of like early 90s New York City and like the danger element of it. And then like they almost die in a fire too, which is also crazy. But it doesn't treat it very seriously at all. Yeah, and like Kirstie Alley's brother pulls a gun several times and it's like that was jarring. I didn't recall that. But but there's those moments and then when you get stuff like the potty monster, which I think is pretty terrific, it's like where's all this fit? It doesn't feel like it's fitting together as well as it did the last time. They're very much like these extremes instead of you know, sort of working off each other. I think there's just less whimsy this time. Like, I think that there's more to enjoy and more to just sort of smile at in the first movie. Like, when this movie starts off once again with the Ova traveling down the Philippine tube, I'm like, oh, it's the same thing. Like, I know that there was like a year or whatever between these movies, and we watched them five or six days apart. So, like, it's it's less time. But I still feel like, oh, this is just like a blatant retread. And Kara, I'm sure you read, I don't know if Mike, if you knew this, but this is not a movie that Amy Heckling really wanted to to do that the studio was like hey let's make a sequel and she's like all right like i think we already told the story but like all right and so here we are and so she made this movie and i think there are maybe kind of some interesting ideas here that weren't in the first one but i feel like the heart isn't in it in a way that the first one like she had this beautiful idea for a first movie that's a bizarre crazy weird idea that worked maybe better than it should but whatever weird alchemy was on the first set it worked really well and then this time i don't know what her Mir was like on set, but from what I read, it just seemed like, yeah, she didn't really want to do this. And I think that you can feel that, that it's just, there's not that creative spark here that there was in the first one that really makes it's something like, you know, unexpected and new and sort of like, you know, wonderful to watch. I hear that, definitely. Like, I, I kind of felt like we were in a little bit of trouble even before the opening sequence when the TriStar horse <laughs> in the logo oh, is yeah. talking like Mr. Fucking Ed. I was like, wait a minute. I really don't remember that happening. Like, this is going for something else. And maybe that is, maybe that was thrown into kind of for Amy Heckerling to be like, you know what? I'm really just going to tear the shit out of this or something. Like, I'm going to take the piss out of this movie, like, right up front and let the viewers know that, like, I'm not on board with this. But it's an extremely short movie, too, right? So, like, there isn't really a lot in here. You can tell, like, there's this kind of the leftover ideas from maybe the last script, you know? Like, maybe the brother was supposed to make an appearance the last time and there just wasn't room to fit him in and, you know, other things, like, with the best friend and stuff. But for what is here, though, I mean, it was a... I, I just feel like she kept it together, at least, like, to me, it plays fine. Like, at least it, it plays. Like, it's not unwatchable to any degree or anything like that. And there's some, there's actually some nice new directorial touches that I noticed. Like, I really kind of enjoyed what she was doing or whoever she hired to do the stuff with the color in this movie. Like, that really kept me watching, you know? Like, that was entertaining. And I was like, okay, I could track this throughout the movie. And that's something to keep me, keep my attention and keep me busy and stuff. And then, as always, waiting for Travolta to start dancing. That's always, that's always great in this movie. Which happened way too late. 
in this one. There was not enough Travolta dancing. Agreed. But when he dances, it is great. You know, it should be illegal to cast him in a movie and not make him dance. It's like people think like Sam Rockwell dances a lot in his movies. It's like, you know, that was Travolta's thing first, I guess. I knew he was a big dancer, but I forgot. Like, he really is in every movie busting a move. You know, Mike, what's weird? This movie is really short. It's only 82 minutes. You mentioned how quick it is. Apparently, when it aired on TV, there were deleted scenes that they added in. Interesting. Like, there were scenes where Molly threatens Mikey with a spanking if Julie runs away again, or he takes Julie away again. There's a running gag where she thinks that John Travolta is cheating on her, and she even imagines him as John Lennon. She imagines him as John Lennon. Imagine all the people cheating on you, I guess. But like, there's all these like weird things that I guess were cut for a reason. But I guess when you have to fill, say, two hours on ABC Family, so back then, you got to add things in. Otherwise, you don't want to have like 40 minutes of commercials. But still, like, it's weird to basically be like, hey, here's a repackaged version of this movie that you thought you watched with stuff that wasn't good enough to make the final cut. I'm just glad we're not as obsessive as our early days where we would have tracked that down and watched it too and made Kara watch it as well and like those days are over (laughs) I'm glad not knowing that that exists yeah there are in this one like in all of the previous movies some really good dream sequences again and I'm like curious to see that John Lennon one because it sounds like another one of these weird dream fantasy nightmare sequences that she's so good at directing like the big brother like baby dream sequence oh a punk rock baby was there a punk rock baby? Is that the one when the, like the he defends his sister on the street from the other baby? Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. The whole thing is is just weird and kind of nice and wonderful. And it's George Harrison's song that they use. And then there's a later Mikey dream sequence that is set to another George Harrison song. I th- I found that interesting because they use the Beach Boys twice in the other movie. And I am just curious if like. They did that for a reason. They call each other Elvis and Priscilla a lot in this movie as sort of pet names to each other. Did you guys catch that too? Well, they they mentioned Elvis a couple other times too, like not even just calling him Elvis. And then they have, he dances the Elvis song and like, it just seems sort of like a running gag or something? Well, Elvis was actually the first choice to play Danny Zuko in film version of Grease. Like, they actually wanted to cast Elvis and Anne-Margaret as Danny and Sandy. Obviously, it would be a very different movie made at a very different time, because he actually died the day that they shot the sleepover scene in Grease. Oh, you guys, you talked about that on the podcast, I think, right? Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. So, I, I think that, that Travolta has, like a weird Elvis parallel in his career. They've also got the same, but I don't think they look alike, but they got the similar hair, the similar yeah. sort of swagger. They could be, I guess, cast in the same type of parts. I mean... And moving those hips. Yep, the hip shaking. Moving those hips. You know, at some point, Mike, you and I might watch every Elvis movie, ahem, ahem. Uh-huh. But, you know, I, I, I just, I, I don't know. Like, I feel Travolta is not the closest thing we have to Elvis, but in ways, the closest thing we have to Elvis. Yeah, I, I think he pulls it off enough like i could see him playing it kurt russell actually played elvis at one point in a john carpenter movie no less uh, way back in the day but i could have totally seen travolta yeah doing the king at one point maybe he still will play the king i mean he could play fat elvis or whatever right before and it could be that scene oh man how crazy would it be if he's playing old elvis and he's at the audition for greece and he's auditioning as danny zuko and there's someone else playing travolta like in the corner going like elvis great to meet you oh my god 
like Aaron Tavit, who was uh, Danny Zuko on the TV broadcast or whatever. That'd be crazy. I'd love to see that. So this movie is notable in that it, once again, I believe, made money. I don't know what the budget was. I would imagine you know, the budget of the first movie was about $7 million. doesn't seem like there's budget listed online anywhere, but it made close to $50 million domestically. So it wasn't the worldwide sensation that the first one was, but it still made its money back. However, it was also lambasted for being a bad movie. I don't know if you looked these up, but it was nominated. So we know about the Razzies, which was nominated for Razzies, which I will get to in a second. But it was nominated for Worst Picture at the Hastings Bad Cinema Society's 13th Stinkers Bad Movie Awards in 1990. That's up for bad titles for bad movie awards. Truly. But you know what one, quote-unquote, one worst picture that year, Mike, was a movie we're going to be covering very soon. Uh, the Bonfire of the Vanities, the Cruise oh, Club movie, that? which also stars Bruce Willis. I think I'm going to be on that episode, right? Isn't that, is that Tom Hanks? I think Cruise is the firm, and Hanks is the bonfire. But that is Bruce Willis as well, so... Hold on, let me take a look at this. Bonfire of the Vanities, 1990. Drumroll, please, while this loads. Oh, it is Hanks, you're right, and Carrie, you are going to be on that, so... Whew, okay, so get ready for that. But, of other sort of kind of significance, in the Razzies, I don't agree with this. Like, the Razzies, you know, it is what it is, but this film is nominated for two Razzie Awards for Worst Supporting Actor for Gilbert Gottfried. Oh, that's more of like a cameo. He's barely in this. It's just, yeah. I think he's great in this. <laughs> I think he's just great, period. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and then also we're supporting actress for Roseanne Barr, who barely has anything to do in this. Like, she's not good. I mean, does that count? Does a voiceover count as worse actor? I mean, the baby's adorable. And, you know, I actually was like, we mentioned last time, I wish it was like Joan Rivers. Roseanne is doing like a very understated version of her you know, normal shtick here. Like, she's very low energy for Roseanne. I was not ex- remembering it this way. I was like, this is fine. I can handle this level of Roseanne. But I would have, now thinking about it, I wish they would have gone with someone who isn't a comic like they did when they went with Bruce Willis originally. And maybe they could have gotten more out of it that way if they had someone who wasn't so much used to being in a comedy. And not that Bruce Willis wasn't in Hudson Hawk, one of the greatest comedies ever made before this. But I mean, you know, I'm just saying. Hudson Hawk is truly great. But neither of those actors won the Razzie. The worst supporting actor went to none other than President Donald Trump in a movie called Ghost Can't Do It, which do either of you know this movie? I've never heard no. of it. So Bo Derek was in this movie that on IMDb has a 2.3 out of 10. Oh, no, Derek. Yeah, Bo Derek. She is a perfect 10. Elderly Scott kills himself after a heart attack wrecks his body, but then comes back as a ghost and convinces his loving, young, hot wife, Kate, to pick and kill a young man in order for Scott to possess his body and be with her again. So that sounds terrible. Uh, Trump won Worst Supporting Actor for that. It was also nominated for Worst Picture of the Razzies that year. And then also, Mike, again, this is not you know something that I agree with, but we you talked about at length with Brian that Sofia Coppola, Domino herself for Godfather 3, was nominated for Worst Supporting Actress and won Worst Supporting Actress for Godfather 3 that year. So I feel like that one, you know, I'm in agreement with you that she's not as bad as people give her credit for, but at least with that nomination, if you hate her, it's like, okay, She's in a lot of that movie. Here, Roseanne has like 20 lines, maybe 30 lines. And she, you know, it just feels like a different kind of ball game they're playing. 
Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, they're very choosy with what they want to award. I wonder, I'm trying to wonder what role did Trump play in that Bo Derek movie? Did we ever? Didn't look it up. Don't really care, but I, you know, I am interested in it. Don't really care, but like, if we're, if we're gauging these by screen time, yeah, what are the qualifications? Like, yeah, I, I want more specifics. I wanted this movie, like, I love the movie, the first movie so much, and, you know, we are. Also today, Mike, I think we mentioned, we t- sort of teased it last week on this show, but you and I are also going to talk about the sequel to this movie, which, according to Letterbox ratings, is even worse than this. Look who's talking now about talking pets. So we're going to talk about that on your show, Third Time's a Charm, which we have not recorded yet, and I have not seen that movie yet. Have you seen that movie or no? No, I've not seen it in its entirety as of yet. So it's another short-ish one, I think. Like, the thing I will say for this movie is that it is short. It's 82 minutes, but it feels longer than that. Like, it feels... Long, like it feels like Johnny dangerously felt long for a ninety-minute movie, you know. <laughs> but it wasn't as bad as I was expecting it to be because I had listened to the "How Did This Get Made" episode that came out about this like not too long ago, and so going into this, I was like, "Oh boy, this is going to be a real letdown." And like having that expectation, I think helped going into this because I was like, "This is going to be really bad," and it was just fine. It wasn't terrible. You know, so it worked out to like a net positive, I think. I didn't see this one in theaters, but I did see it a lot. And I don't remember liking it as much as I did the first one either. I do now like the little things that it does try to go for, like potty training and exploring that and talking about talking to their kids about their bodies and real issues like money argument and being the breadwinner and literally not knowing where your paycheck is going to come from. And like, you know, maybe there's too many of that kind of thing going on here but it's it's kind of nice from time to time just to see like a family drama slash comedy you know tackle some real issues once in a while yeah and the whole thing with her brother and their like clashing values and difficulty negotiating that one thing that i realized and this kind of ties back in with what i was saying before about this movie being a lot darker is that there are a lot of taxi driver references in this movie like travolta refers to her brother at one point as travis bickle and the actor that plays him looks so much like a young de niro it's kind of crazy um there were like a few more that i picked up on while i was watching it well travolta drives a taxi he's a taxi driver yeah Right. Also, there's that. Yeah. And I also kind of thought now he becomes a pilot in this one, but he's just kind of like a air taxi guy. Like I thought that was I was like, oh, yeah, like that's kind of I didn't think of that. Like when you become a pilot, you don't just start flying jets and jumbo jets and passenger airlines and stuff. Like You got to work your way up. You got to earn those flight hours. It is weird that in this world, it seems like everybody's profession is either taxi driver or accountant. Like, we get a couple more accountants in this, more accountant humor, which I, you know, I like. Again, it just sort of feels in the same way like a retread of the first movie, which, again, I, I think it's sometimes hard in this regard on being overly critical of this movie, because I feel like those are the kind of things that if you watch the movies a year apart, you might be like, oh, I remember those kind of things from the first movie. It might be more nostalgic in a way, but having just watched these, I'm hoping for more Originality, You know what I mean? Like, it feels like, oh, yeah, we just saw that and we saw it better. Or if it, if, even if it wasn't better, it was new, at least. And so, you know, there's that. Yeah, I was expecting it and actually remembered it to be sort of more focusing on what it's like to raise a daughter this time instead of raising a son. But it's kind of not. Like, it's more about, like, 
being brother and sister when they get down to like the baby's talk and and that kind of thing the parents kind of like ignore the kids in this movie quite a lot i feel i think like that could have been strong if they're like okay now we're just going to really dive into the differences here of having a daughter but i think they're both of them are still too young for like the gender differences to really be that stark or that maybe that's another issue too maybe mikey should have been a couple years older and we pick this up down the line a little bit Great makeover montage, though. I love that. With the daughter chomping down on brushes and stuff, too. Yeah, that was so cute. But also, as I was watching it, I was like, oh my god, this is where the, like, well, one of the makeover scenes in Clueless comes from. It's the one where Cher is, like, getting ready before Christian comes over for their date night, where they're gonna watch some, like, hot and sporadicus. And (laughs) Cher's trying to figure out what to wear, and she's like, oh, I'm so nervous. And she's, like, standing there with her dress, and she's holding her hair up in the mirror, and she makes this face. And Kirstie Alley does the exact same pose in that scene. It made me excited. You think that's a pose that Amy Hackerling does in real life? Or is that a pose that every woman does? Or is that just an Amy Hackerling thing, do you think? I don't know. I've never tried on clothes that way, where they're just like holding it up to their body. Like, why would you? It looks completely different when it's on you. But I feel like that's a very movie thing to do, just sort of in general, right? It's just like, a, oh, like, let me lay this on top yeah. of me. She also does a big hair flip where she's like leaning forward and all of her hair is forward. And then she throws it back over her head. And Cher does that in Clueless, too. You guys, I'm so excited to watch Clueless. Next week, next week. Kara, I thought of you again because this time they went even more in-depth into the eyebrows. I know. What's the deal with eyebrows? I don't remember who said that, but I wrote down the quote. It's it's the baby girl's, like, one of her first monologues is about, like, what are these things? Different sizes and shapes, and what are they even for? Yeah, I just, reading the quote, it, like, it sounded to me like something that Jerry Seinfeld would say. What's the deal with eyebrows? What's the deal? <laughs> you know, speaking of early monologues from the baby girl from Roseanne, we had in the first movie... Bruce Willis calls his penis a a third arm, and here she calls her vagina a second mouth, which I guess it is gross. Like, that's just, let's do the same kind of joke, but like, what does it look like? What would a baby think it is? Another mouth. And it's just like, whoo, okay. The baby puppet this time was Oh, terrifying. Yeah, I know. (laughs) It also feels like, I know there was the umbilical cord, you know, wrapping around its head, that which is why she has to have a C-section, which we talked about why, you know, the baby almost dies in the beginning of this movie, but it also kind of looks in a weird way, and maybe I'm just inspired once again by your Halloween costume, Kara, but it sort of looks like a Persephone, like, crown of thorns in a way, like, around her head, just this goddess of the underworld in a way. Like, I feel like that was not at all what they were going for, but that's what my brain saw, so that's something. There's no need to respond to that. (laughs) I'll transition in a way to, there is a restaurant that was opened, apparently, in this world called Eat Me Raw. (laughs) So, okay. They were going to serve all raw food, but people thought it was a porno theater. What an idea. I feel like we're sort of already kind of out of things to say. We could play Penis or No Penis, everybody's favorite game show. (laughs) No, thanks. This is where I learned what a diaphragm was. I guess that's something, because I was, what, 11? So that was before sex ed, I guess. I don't know. Someone had to construct a gigantic one for the purposes of filming. This is the second movie in a row where uh, Kirstie Alley has a painful labor-induced fuck. Mm -hmm. Where she drops that, or she is sort of, it seems like, demonically possessed by her contractions. They completely skipped over her finding out she's pregnant. It feels like a lot of the first act was condensed. Yeah. I feel like she was supposed to be pregnant for a bit longer. Because, I mean, 
when you find out that like a human being is growing inside of you and you didn't mean for that to happen that's kind of like a big deal you know i feel like for the movie to just like skip over it was weird well, I feel like you know the movie is 82 minutes long. I guess they can't spend 30 seconds on that scene because then it would be 82 and a half minutes long. I don't know. I just just disappointed. You know, I'm not I'm not mad. I'm just disappointed in this movie. That's all I've got to say about it. So this movie marks the second time I caught a Stallone joke. Yeah, yeah. There was one in Johnny Dangerously where there was a sketch that says, "Is this Johnny Dangerously?" But it was a sketch of Stallone. Yep. And then there was another gag in this movie. So. I don't know what their deal is with Stallone, but it's hilarious. <laughs> and also, kind of close to our heart, just as a real quick aside, this is the same year that Rocky V came out, so he was in the news for, and I think that was also nominated for Worst Film at the Razzies, so... Go for it. A, a rough a rough year to be Stallone, maybe. Although, you know, Mikey does correctly identify him as penis, so... That was very funny. Amy Heckerling also seems to have a thing with uh, captain's hats, because... Kirstie Alley's father, who's Amy Heckerling's father in real life, in this movie is wearing a captain's hat. It's actually a black baseball cap, but it says captain on it. And then in Clueless, (laughs) there are several sailor hats in that, and even talk of sailor hats and captain's hats. So I don't know what that's about, but it's, it's definitely a thing. The costumes in this were also really great, I thought. They're kind of subtle, but still like very stylized and good set dressing, too. That just, like, feels very Heckerling. Would we say that the triumvirate or the trifecta of Amy Heckerling directorial flourishes are cool soundtrack, cool clothes, dream sequences? Those seem to be the big three so far. I would add a fourth, which is backlighting. She uses, like, a specific lighting technique a lot that's very kind of, like, old Hollywood, where you'll see that they're kind of outlined in light because the light that's on their back is actually brighter than the light that's hitting them on the front. I've just noticed that it's shown up in most of the movies that we've watched so far that is just like a lighting technique that she seems to be quite fond of. Are we out of things to say about Look Who's Talking To already? Because I feel like I am. Possibly. I already closed my, my Word document that has my notes in it because it's just, I got nothing, guys. I thought Travolta looked pretty good in this. Like, Oh, he looked thinner, right? He, he looks like he lost weight. Yeah. Yeah. He was really in shape. Like, he was really moving around and dancing and stuff. And I just loved Kirstie Alley. Like, she's just a great presence, I feel, on screen. Like, I like how she can make her voice crack. and She's so good at crying. <laughs> she's just very, you know, expressive in that way. Like, she uses her arms. I like the way she, like, does that. Like, you're saying when she flips her hair, I scrunch her face up at times and stuff. She seems to be having a good time too so like everyone that's the thing too like i get the feeling like this might have been kind of fun or everyone at least was like getting along and everything it's just too bad that there wasn't more to work with but one thing i did want to point out you mentioned how good kirstie alley looked i don't know if you mentioned this earlier Kara, and when you were talking about her costuming but she wears a pair of glasses in this movie that are like gigantic and not like comically gigantic just like early 90s late 80s gigantic and they just look incredible like i don't i don't know how to describe them other than they are just like a third of the size of her face and they just look great like she's got these like really i guess current at the time but feeling today old school glasses which i you know eyeglasses reading glasses whatever that i really appreciated so good on you I'm frantically Google image searching, looking for it right now. I also noticed, Joey, I don't know if you picked up on this, at the end they have like a nice Fast and Furious style barbecue where they're all together as a family. Uh, I don't think I noticed it because I think by that point I was checked out. But, you know, I do appreciate a good barbecue to end a film, of course. 
There's also a little post-credit thing, too. It ends with Mikey and his sister walking away, and then it freeze frames, and it fades to black, and the credits roll, and then it comes back, and she falls down, and she goes, ow, my tush. <laughs> huh. Was that before the credits? Or that, was, that was after the credits? Yeah. Man, I did not I did not catch that. I can tell you that much. I've been watching credits. I don't know. I've been conditioned by Marvel now. Yeah, I like fast-forwarded through them. I, I didn't see them. Maybe I, maybe I bailed too early. I don't know. One more thing about Look Who's Talking To. In the How Did This Get Made episode, they talked for quite a while about this weird basket that they have hanging on the inside of the door in the apartment. And so watching the last movie, I had my eye peeled for these basket doors. And what I realized is there's actually two different doors in this apartment. I had to draw like a whole mental map of like the layout. It took me almost the entire movie. I noticed that in the first movie because you remember when in the first movie Travolta wrestles with the baby's father. Yeah. And like they they completely destroy like the entrance. Right. And it's like a little hallway kind of. Yeah. Yes. And Kirstie Alley walks in there and she's like, oh, what happened here? And he's like, oh, Albert was here or whatever. And then she forces, you know, Kirstie Alley kicks Travolta out of her apartment and he leaves through a door that is... In the kitchen. Yes. And that's the door that they use most often. But... I'm going to, I'm just going to send you some pictures. Wait, but hold on. In the meantime, I found, take a look at that. Look at those glasses. Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. Those Those are some killer glasses. I've been cleaning out my garage and I've been coming across all types of glasses that I used to have that I've just, you know, when they broke, I threw the frames in a box and they are some ugly glasses that I used to wear back in (laughs) the We all wore ugly glasses. Like these are, I mean, I know this is the 90s, but you know, I, I guess, I don't remember if it was one of our podcasts or another podcast or whatever, but basically, you know, like 1990 is sort of the, the ultimate summation of the 80s. And like these glasses that she's wearing are very 80s. Like, like I, I'm not exactly, like that. they are basically a third of her face. Like it is, they are huge. And no, yeah, she looks like an X-Man. Like she's a cyclops. She also looks like, like a scientist with goggles on. Like they're that That's size. It. Right. You know? Yeah. That's a better call. Anything else we want to say about... Wait, the baskets. So they have these weird baskets. So in the in the little hallway, on the little hallway door, there's a totally normal basket hanging on the inside of the door with like papers in it and stuff. Normal ass basket. But then the door in the kitchen has a weird, very shallow, round basket on the back of the door, like flush with the door and then in this movie there is a different basket and it's a (laughs) rectangular basket it's a much bigger basket and the way that it's positioned on the door just doesn't make any sense whatsoever so i spent a lot of time thinking about that i'll send you some pictures eventually yeah well thank you i appreciate it mike we got another we got another hour to talk about this franchise sometime soon releasing today on the cage club podcast network is oh is there an adaptation of this is there a book not that i could find thank god well i mean the important thing though is we've made it through we're, we're not halfway done with amy heckerling which is a little sad we've gotten through hopefully the back half is better i think between clueless and red oaks generally speaking we're gonna have at least as much good stuff in the, as the first half but you know next week the big one kara's favorite movie of all time we've talked about it maybe in every episode so far next week clueless I am listening to the audiobook of a book called As If, which is an oral history of the making of Clueless, and it's so good. There are entire 
chapters just based like just about the lighting and just about the production design and just about the costumes it is a dream i'm learning so like i had no idea that i could even learn any more about this movie and there's so much to learn and it's been such a joy joey did you know that justin thoreau actually auditioned to play paul rudd's part oh kevin garvey wow i love him this is going to be like a two-parter episode. I feel like it's going to it's going to be an epic one. <laughs> It might. Oh, also, Amy Ackerling directed a few, at least a handful of episodes of the Clueless TV show, right? So we're going to see if we can get our hands on those and watch those. Are, were those out, are those out on DVD? Do you own those? No. I bought a DVD of the movie, though. Of course. I don't know if I have one, but I should buy it because that is a delight of a movie. It truly is. It's, I was also worried, like, oh, is it going to like really hold up when I watch it this time after we've spent so much time talking about this stuff? And like we already covered it on Wistful Thinking and whatever, but just reading this book, I know that I'm going to have so much fun when I watch it again. And, you know, as we record this, this is election day and I'm feeling a lot of dread and this is kind of keeping me afloat. So thanks, Cinemakers. Well, that's kind of the whole reason, not the whole reason why we have the podcast, but, you know, a, a reason we're doing the podcast so fervently is because... As I think you said in an earlier episode, Kara, real life, not that great. Movies, a little bit of an escape. Mm -hmm. But for all things Cinemakers, and also all of our other 22 shows in total, if not more by now, who knows? I don't know. Go to cageclub.me or facebook.com slash cageclub or at cageclubpod on Twitter and Instagram. Oh, I'll say this here this time. Go to cageclub.me slash newsletter. Sign up for our free monthly newsletter. I email it out on the first of the month, every month, never more often than that. Keep abreast of what's going on in our network, the best of the best. I feel like this show, unlike any other, has the most sort of variation in when it starts and ends and who we're covering next. So if you like the format of Cinemakers, I'm also curious to know, email Cinemakers at Club.me. Are you listening to the show? Mike, do you think that people are listening? Again, we don't know. I see download numbers, but I don't know who these people are. Do you think people are just tuning in for Amy Heckerling or people are like are on board for all of Cinemakers? Like, I don't, what, what do you think? What, what, what? Just what question mark? I hope, as I do with the rest of the shows on the network, that we sort of reel someone in with one show and they ex they discover, like, all the other shows and what's going on. You know what I'm saying? So, like, maybe someone's here for Amy Heckerling and they're like, oh, I like Steven Soderbergh. Like, I'll, I'll check out some of those episodes. And like, oh, these guys also do uh, Zac Efron podcast, or one of them at least does. And then there's all these other shows on the network. Like, let's see what's going on over here. I hope so. I know that we've had a few crossover fans. So, you know, we do have, as this comes out, like 750 or close to 800 episodes, maybe, somewhere in there. I don't know exactly where. But we've got a lot of shows, a lot of movies, a lot of things that we've covered and talked about on cageclub.me. Poke around. It's all free. As far as I know, it's always going to be free. So just go find things. If you have a big movie, we, there's a chance that we've covered it. So go search and just listen, and I hope you enjoy. Email cinemakers at cageclub.me. Let us know that you're listening. That's all we got. Oh, wait, sorry. Kara sent it through a couple pictures of these baskets. These baskets are real weird. <laughs> they just don't seem practical. No. Nope. Why are they there? I mean, the first one seems kind of decorative. Like, it's an interesting weaving or whatever. The second one, that's just a regular-ass basket that's hung on a door in a really weird way. And this is the same door, yes? Yeah, so that is the door in the kitchen. I also have a shot 
from the first movie where you kind of see both doors. So Travolta is standing in the little entryway. And so on the left, you see the main door. And then on the right, it's kind of hard to see. But that's the door in the kitchen. And there's like a wall between them. You know, I don't like this from a former apartment dweller, former apartment renter. I don't like having two doors to the outside. Like, no wonder that they have a burglar. Mm. Like, you got to guard so many entrances. <laughs> but they come through the window. I know. There's even more entrances. I don't know. I don't, I don't think this was, like, this seems to be an actual place, you know, like an actual apartment. Maybe fire the location scout. You know what I wonder if, because the basket's in the same place and the door, like, I wonder if that door, one thing I will give this movie credit for, and I know that we're wrapping up and this is a, a conversation we maybe should have had earlier, but I like that both Travolta and Kirstie Alley and Bruce Willis, they're all back, you know, Olympia Dukakis back, like, everybody's back from the first movie. It feels like the sets are still there. I mean, I know it's only a year apart. Maybe if they're using the same set, maybe there's, like, a hideous mark or something on the door, Yeah. and they just need to cover it up, and they lost the basket in between movies, but the door is the same, and they're like, oh, we need another thing to hang there. It could be something as dumb as that, but really, who knows? Or the first basket was just there in the first movie, and then in the second movie, they were like, let's get a different weird basket. How funny would that be? No one's gonna notice and now at least two podcasts people have talked about it well there you go so go to cageclub.me facebook.com slash cageclub and at cageclubpod on twitter and instagram email cinemakers at cageclub.me with your basket thoughts i'm joey lewandowski i'm cara gallo regan and i'm mike manzi and we'll be back next week with clueless right here on cinemakers <laughs>